Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Cruz. Today, we welcome one of those guests with so many accomplishments and involvements, it's hard to know where to start. Suffice it to say that Rebecca Love is a force in nursing, leading efforts to empower nurses to be innovators and entrepreneurs in improving the healthcare system and advocating for the profession in a wide variety of other ways. She's an entrepreneur herself, founding HireNurses.com in 2013, where she served as the managing director of U.S. markets until its acquisition several years ago. In early 2019, Rebecca, joined by a group of leading nurses across the globe, founded and led the Society of Nurse Scientists, Innovators, Entrepreneurs, and Leaders, a nonprofit that quickly attained recognition by the United Nations as an affiliate member. On the education front, Rebecca holds a master's degree, a bachelor's degree, in addition to being an RN. She was the first director of nurse innovation and entrepreneurship at Northeastern School of Nursing, which was the first program of its kind in the United States. Other groundbreaking roles include being the first nurse featured on TED.com, and appearing on the first nurse panel at South by Southwest. Currently, she serves as the chief clinical officer of IntelliCare, which offers workforce management solutions for healthcare facilities. And we're very pleased to have you with us today. Thanks for coming. Mike, thank you so much for having me. So I'm just scratching the surface there with that introduction. What would you like to add to that? And, and what do you think is your most significant accomplishment so far? I appreciate you saying that. Um, I think that, you know, the one thing that I... I feel that I've always stayed very true on is the fight for the nursing profession and staying as close to the issues that matter to the front line as possible. I think it's very easy as we grow in our careers to forget where we came from. And for me, it's always been about nursing. So I think some of the things that are the most important thing for me and, and that I still value is recognizing where I started and how important those roles are at the bedside. So I think that outside of, I, I, I know it's so weird when you hear people read back things that you've done in your life, because in the moment you still suffer from imposter syndrome and feeling like you're making any difference. And sometimes people read things back to you and <laughs> you feel rather surprised of the things that you accomplished when you put them in a format like that. So thank you for, for the introduction. But I still really pride myself on saying that we're going to represent nursing to the fullest and try to help them find a voice on a larger scale. So that the profession is recognized for the value that they bring to healthcare. So where did your nursing career start and, and what drew you to it in the first place? So my nursing career started on, actually, I had no interest in being a nurse. My, my first degree was in international relations and a minor in Spanish at, at Boston University. And it really was a conversation with my mom. I had been accepted into law school and I was working on a presidential campaign. And at the time, healthcare was a major issue. And what I realized is everybody would go to these conferences and these meetings to talk about healthcare, and all the people in the room were like attorneys and lobbyists, and there was no healthcare people in the room. And I found that very strange working on this presidential campaign, but I thought I was going to law school and joining the campaign down in D.C. as I had been asked to go. And uh, that was a conversation my mom said to me, you know, Rebecca, we're not going to support you going into law school. We believe that you should be a nurse. And why that happened was she had gone back to nursing school late in life or later in life. She was 49 when she was accepted into nursing school. And what she said to me after graduation and living this life, when she sat me down after I thought my life was turning into that the direction of, of going into the legal world, she said, there's plenty of strong lawyers in the world, but there's not enough strong nurses. Because what she had witnessed as a nurse at the bedside, which she felt was still 
the most prestigious career that you could have was being a nurse in her eyes. She felt that there was no greater profession than being a nurse. And what she experienced after becoming a nurse was a place of deep disempowerment for what she felt was the greatest profession that existed in our society today. And I remember I agreed to apply to one nursing school at that time. And then I sent in my application and they called me and they said, come in for an interview, but just know it's a two-year waiting list to get into an advanced nursing program. Because I, I had a bachelor's, so I was going into one of those accelerated RN to BSN to MSN programs and had the interview and said, okay, well, I guess I'm off to law school. And two weeks later, they sent me a letter saying I had been accepted and could start in the fall. Yeah. If you're like me, all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's a sign. I'm supposed to do that. So I went to nursing school and it was a very hard process for me. I don't think nursing school is easy. I think actually it's been said that nursing school is actually the most difficult degree to achieve of any degree out there with the high degree of technicality in wide areas, but very limited understanding of that degree. But if you're looking at it, almost one in three individuals who start nursing school today actually fail out or leave the actual program due to the amount of rigor that it had. And also inflexibility. And that's sort of what I experienced in nursing school, but I made it through and the rest is sort of history there. So you talk about, you know, coming into this with your mother's sense of nurses being disempowered. I imagine that was on your mind from the beginning. And how soon was it that you started identifying opportunities to maybe do something about that? And were you always thinking, okay, I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to help change this culture. Gosh, no, I, that is funny. I, I mean, that statement to me, I guess, would have immediately made you think that I would have thought that I had to be a leader in it. I think I never even, I, in nursing school, there wasn't, in my program at least, there wasn't a lot of talk about leadership as nurses, even though I was a nurse practitioner, the idea was always very clinically focused, which, you know, you're going to graduate, you're going to be by the bedside, then you're going to come back to us and finish graduate school. You're going to go out and be a nurse practitioner at the bedside. At the time I was in Massachusetts where we did not have full practice authority. So even the idea of being a nurse practitioner with full practice and to have your own clinic was never an idea. So I always knew that I would probably always be in a role that would be in the hierarchy of healthcare underneath some kind of, of, of hierarchical process, which I, I know you're very familiar with is nurses are under the roles of physicians and administrators. So when I when I graduated uh, as a nurse practitioner, I realized quickly that that role was a role that you would operate mar largely like a resident for the rest of your life as a nurse practitioner, right? You would operate as a resident does who's in medical school because of the degree of the complexity of the job, the need for it, but also the lack of autonomy within the state of Massachusetts. And I think my first experience of leadership really came when at that time I was just like many women, right? We had got married. We started to have families. My husband thought I was going to stay home. There was a fight at home. Whoever had that conversation there came a little late, but I had then decided to apply to teach at a community college in Boston. And I think my first step into a foray of leadership was when I started teaching at this community college. It was Bunker Hill Community College in Boston, the inner city college. And I realized the vast majority of my students in front of me had chosen nursing because they were told that nursing would always give them access to a financial means to live a life that would allow them to pay bills and to have opportunities that most of these individuals had never experienced. They were told that if they became nurses, they could live the American dream. And at my community college in Boston, most of my students were from other countries. Many of them had grown up in foster care. I had a significant number of single mothers and very high percentage of minority women in my classes. 
And nursing for them became the American dream. And it was my first opportunity that I started to realize that I was leading a group of individuals who I stood between them and financial security and their dreams and aspirations for what it meant for their lives. And that is probably where my belief in nursing changed what it meant to me and what it meant to, to our society, but also what it meant as a driver for security for some of the most compassionate, intelligent people that I ever met, but who the odds of life had largely been stacked against them. And I, so that's where my first opportunity for leadership came. And I threw myself into, I loved every minute of teaching, Mike. I loved every minute of teaching at a community college associate degree nursing program because the odds were definitely stacked against them. The, the degree, the rigor is no less in an associate degree nursing program. You just don't have all of the theory that a bachelor's program does, but all of the clinical rigor in an associate degree nursing program is equal to that of the best you know, universities that offer nursing in the country, but with a population who had come from such a difficult background, English as second language, or as I said, coming from foster care systems where their basic understanding and knowledge of, of traditional education was at best weak, if not broken in, in clinical, in, in critical areas. Yeah. What a responsibility to have too, with all of that in mind. So anyway, all your former students now are out there in this nursing workforce, you have your roots top of mind, as you were saying at the beginning, but it's kind of messy out there in the nursing workforce world, and everybody seems to be wringing their hands about what to do about it. What's your take on what's happening with nurse staffing, you know, where it went sideways, let's say, and where does IntelliCare fit into that? And Mike, I think nursing is in the most critical place I have ever seen it is in my profession. I'm sure you researched the, the recent studies, but there was a McKinsey report that came out in 2021. It just followed up in 2023. Everybody thought it couldn't have gotten worse from the 2021 report, which said that one in three bedside nurses was looking to look leave the profession or the bedside, which actually played out. But the most recent study came out showing that nursing is as equally as unhappy, if not more unhappy than it was two years ago. But the interesting thing is, Mike, is that there's actually more nurses today in the United States than ever before in history, nearly a million more than there was a decade ago. We have over 5 million nurses in the United States. The average age of a nurse is 54, so 50% of the population is over the age of 54, 70% is over 40. But I think the concerning thing is, is that we graduate 250,000 nursing students a year in the United States. That is the largest profession of any profession that we graduate from any degree program in the United States. And an increase of 15% per year over the course of the last five years based on research out of the University of Pennsylvania led by Linda Aiken, which means that we are graduating more nurses than ever before in history. But the reality is they're not staying. Even before the pandemic, 57% of new grads left the bedside within two years of practice. And we believe in the last two years, the largest demographic of nurses leaving the bedside are nurses with less than one year of experience. And this is something no one is talking about. And what I say often, which is not popular, is that we don't have a shortage of nurses in this country. We have a shortage of nurses willing to practice in the healthcare environments as, are, as they are today. Because as I said, we have more nurses than ever before. We have more nurses graduating from nursing school ever before, but we do not have nurses who are staying and practicing. And actually the average length of experience on a 12 hour shift has dropped from the average of six years of experience prior to the pandemic down to 2.8 years of experience on a 12 hour shift. 
which is the lowest ever in the history of the United States from an experienced perspective on a hospital floor. So what I'm, what's going on in the nursing profession right now is that healthcare has consistently staffed nursing to the lowest cost denominator within healthcare systems. Why And why that happens is because nursing is a cost to healthcare system. They are the only profession that is a cost to healthcare systems. And I think it has become increasingly difficult for nurses to be able to operate. So taking a step back from all that, like, who is in telecare? Why am I here? What, what is this about? Why did I join? And telecare is one of the few platforms in the country that took a paper process, put it into a technology for nurses, sped it up, and actually drove greater efficiency and better usability and satisfaction among the nursing population when you took a paper process and put it into tech. And I like to say that's what, if you do that for staffing and scheduling, because we are basically a workforce management solution or staffing company for nurses across long-term care. I oversee a 35,000 nursing workforce across 20, uh, uh, sorry, 38 states who pick up shifts when and where they want because we took a scheduling system and largely made it Uber-like for nurses to pick up shifts. And what we saw through our experience, Mike, was that when you gave the power of nurses, the ability to pick up shifts when and where they wanted to work on a schedule that was not as you know difficult as it's been traditionally for per diem models, you we saw that we expected nurses to pick up one shift a month with us. But when you made it this easy, they on average were picking up five shifts a month with us. So what you see in this process is that technology certainly can scale a workforce who otherwise would not be scaling themselves in traditional models. And I joined in telecare because I believed as long as nurses remained cost to healthcare systems, healthcare was never going to invest in anything to make the lives of nurses better. And it was going to take private industry to do so. So I strongly believed by joining in telecare that we could change the future of work for nurses when we gave them technology that was designed with them at the heart of it to enable them to scale when they could work so that we could take care of more patients in more settings by using technology to allow us to do so. So really, it sounds to me the flexibility is key to this. I think absolutely. I think we've been so rigored into directional scheduling models in nursing for decades that when the simple thing of flexibility optimized through technology, suddenly nurses love you just for the simplicity of allowing there to be flexibility. And I know it sounds almost too simplistic to believe that that could be a silver bullet, um, but honestly, that's basically all we offer, Mike. I wish to say that there was tremendously more, you know, whiz and, and bells and substantially, you know, 100 times more pay for nurses because I would pay nurses as much as, they, as the market would ever allow. But none of that is true. We simply created a platform that allows nurses more of a credentialing passport to pick up and work. Any facility in ours allows them to meet those credentialing standards so they can work anywhere that they want, when and how, and allow them that flexibility to make it happen. And guess what? Nurses work more, not less, when you, they give you that opportunity. Well, and it just meets them where they're at. And I think people learned this a lot during the pandemic. People are juggling a lot in their lives. And most nurses are women. And most women are responsible primarily for the children and the parents and everything else. So how could you, in a way, keep a full-time job and, and do all of that? So you can totally see how this would make it easier to fit into their lives with all their other responsibilities. 
It certainly does. And actually, you would be really surprised, Mike. The vast majority of people who work with us still have full-time jobs. They just use us as their secondary source because I don't know if you know this, but the vast majority of nurses in this country work more than one job. It's always been a profession who's always worked more than one job because financially, even though we think that nurses are very well paid, actually, comparative to any other degree program in the country, they are the only hourly employee in all of healthcare that is a degree level, right? We do not have salaries. So nurses are constantly working more shifts, more over time other jobs because their financial security is not as secure as you would expect for being a nurse because you really can't afford to make ends meet when you have a family of four we're living on a nursing salary in this country that is still a misnomer i think that if you look at average hourly wages you're looking at nurses across the spectrum with 20 years of experience to one year of experience i think skewed directly as i said 54 50 percent of that population is over 54 so your bls data is skewed to higher amounts of hourly pay for nurses when actually if you look across the country, those numbers are dramatically lower. So flexibility is is part of the solution here. But, you know, you've also pointed out that a lot of the burnout is because they don't want to work in the healthcare environments that exist. So what are your thoughts about changing that? That's a much bigger problem to address, obviously. It is a much larger problem. So, and, and, and Mike, I'm going to talk about something that I think is, is really important to talk about. And, and I, I mentioned it earlier, nurses are cost to healthcare systems, which means as a profession, every other profession has a reimbursement code, and nursing becomes the largest cost center to healthcare systems on their operating budget. And I and you know this from running a business, right? Nobody invests in costs in businesses; they cut costs. And nurses have remained cost in the healthcare system since the earliest development of insurance in this country back in the 1930s. So, if you don't mind, I'd actually like to step you back about a hundred years in history because I think it's really important to tell you love time travel. <laughs> Time travel, that's exactly it. So we'll take us backwards along those ones. And I think it's, a, you know, in the early 1900s, women in this country were fighting for the right to vote. And in the American Nurses Association actually remained external to that fight until 1919, when they helped organize the largest march in the history of the United States for the women's suffrage movement. And so 1919, they organized this march. 1920, women's get the right to vote in this country. And in the 1920s, nursing becomes the largest economic vehicle for women's financial independence in the history of the United States. Now, at this time, hospitals existed, but they were places of the most deplorable condition. Only the most destitute would seek care there. But as surgery started to develop, families started to bring private duty nurses into the hospitals to deliver care. At that time, nurses all ran their own independent practices. They built independently for their services. So hospitals started to see that this care started to get better. So they started to bring nurses into hospital systems and employ them. And if you look at bills in the 1920s, every bill from a hospital will specifically have a line for nursing services on the bill that was delivered to patients. Now, as I said, Nursing started to become more powerful because of that. Now, at that time, the hospitals were run by men. Physicians were men, and they started to feel threatened by the increasing economic capacity that nurses started to have. And as the expert and historian Donna Deere said, they wanted to develop a model to keep nurses as far away from the money as possible because they started to see nurses as economic competition to the hospitals. So 1930s, national insurance starts to get developed. Hospital administrators, physicians start to look for a model to pay for nursing, but not to recognize them on the bills any longer. They turn to hotels, realize that maids are rolled into room rates, and then they roll nurses into room rates, forever hiding their value. And 100 years later, nursing is still the only healthcare professional that does not have a billable service 
and remains the largest cost center to hospital systems. So in full disclosure, we have launched a commission to take on nursing reimbursement to pull them out of the room rate because the only way we are going to truly solve the misalignment, more nurses equal more costs without associated revenue lines, is to make sure that we get them out of being a cost structure. So we need reform on our payment models to pull nursing out of the healthcare system's room rates and make sure that they are a billable service and we can invest in them accordingly. Everything else is going to be lipstick on pigs, as they say, or band-aids on gorges, because until you figure out a financial model, as even as President Biden says, you want to understand what people value, look at where their budgets are. And we know for far too long, there has been no value because nursing is hidden from any budget line from investment resources within healthcare. But you talk about upsetting the apple cart. I mean, that, <laughs> that you've got to have a lot of people at the table to agree to a lot of change. So what's the strategy to get that to happen? So the good news is actually there's quite a bit of strategy behind it. And luckily for me, it's not me leading on that because I'm not the economist. But we have John Welton, who is one of the most brilliant historians in this space. We have Olga Yakushova, who is one of two economists in the United States who are studying this to, to develop this model alongside Ron Longyear, who's a data scientist in the nursing space, studying the impacts of all of these things, coming up with models. Now, the reality is actually in the 1980s, when DRG codes were actually established in this country, there were a whole bunch of DRG codes that were written to actually address nursing services, but were levied against or lobbied against from going into the system. So actually, for the last 50 years, nurses have repeatedly tried for models to get nursing recognized, but have always been sort of beaten down. So we're looking at models that are pretty much conventional OTPT models, DRG codes coming to the table with a whole bunch of options that we have seen work for all of all the other professions that have gotten their professions reimbursed. I mean, in all honesty, respiratory therapy, MRI techs, occupational therapists, all of these are relatively new DRG codes in the course of the last 10, 20 years. OTPT a little bit further. It has happened for every other profession. It's only nursing that has stayed in the room race. And, and I don't know if you had followed, Mike, the work of the treasurer's office in North Carolina. Have you been following any of the stories that have come out of North Carolina? No, no. So Treasurer Powell, let me just give you a little bit of why we think this can happen and why it's important to happen, is Treasurer Powell ended up pulling the Medicaid license for Novant's healthcare system after Novant's healthcare system started to see emergency room wait times going up to over 20 hours in their system. And they had eliminated nursing positions across the entire system, claiming they could not afford more nursing pay or more nurses at their bedside. So patients started dying in the hallways and in the emergency rooms at Novant's healthcare system. And the Medicaid and the Treasurer Powell looked into this and said, this is crazy because we've given you billions of dollars or millions of dollars the last few years why are you not staffing your hospital system? So they pulled, he said, you're violating the social contract that you have for Medicaid reimbursement, pulled their Medicaid license, and Novant suddenly found millions of dollars to hire nursing. So then Treasurer Powell wondered, where did they find this money and where did all the money go? So he launched an investigation that he published about six months ago that showed in the course of the last 10 years, the state of North Carolina had given $1.75 billion to nonprofit healthcare systems that had specifically only gone to executive pay in that time. They found that CEO pay had doubled within five years, but nursing salaries had only increased 14% over 10 years at the rate of 1.4% per year. And what he also found was that during 2020, when most of the healthcare systems were furloughing nurses on the front lines of the pandemic, None of these executives took a pay cut during that time. 
And what he also found based on his report was that executive pay had no correlation to the mission of the hospital nor patient outcomes. So the report basically showed billions of dollars had been going into nonprofit healthcare systems to support executive pay, but at the same time, crying that they could not afford to staff nursing. And what we're trying to say at the argument is, we know there's plenty of money going in. It's just not going to support the nursing services. And the only way we're going to find out those models and measures better is to start tracking that and paying nurses accordingly so those dollars cannot be misdirected to other directions within healthcare. So financially, you're seeing this as zero sum as opposed to a new stream of funding or additional funding that's needed. That's correct. And the reason some people have asked me now, Rebecca, why won't value-based care solve this? And the issue is, is that nursing is the only profession that does not have an NPI number, which is a national identification, I'm sorry, national provider identifier. Every other profession has one. So even if we rolled out value-based care, the truth is, is there would only be tracking the outcomes back to the room. And it would be amazing if beds got patients better. But I think we all know, or we should know, that the only thing that really drives outcomes in hospitals and nursing homes, the only reason patients are there is because they need nursing care. Everything else could be done outpatient, Mike. OT, PT, respiratory therapy, surgery, all of that could be done outpatient. What we know for certain is the reason that patients are in hospitals and nursing homes today is because their life is so at risk that without 24-7 attention by a nurse, they could die. And somehow we have lost that focus in healthcare, that the most critical workforce in all of healthcare to keeping our hospitals open is nurses. And for some reason, we always knew this was coming, and but so many people seem caught off guard that today... Healthcare is at a teetering point. Literally, hospitals are closing their doors. They're not staffing beds because one profession that they don't have to take care of patients is nurses. And I have to ask, you know, my, you know, I ask people this a lot. Where would we be in the world without nursing in our society, but more importantly, within our hospitals? And I think we're starting to see that play out. Well, this is going to be super interesting to keep our eye on, and it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of adjustments you can get the system to make. But in the interest of time, I want to wrap up by giving you a shot that we give to all of our guests, which is to address our pretty young audience, you know, a lot of learners, nursing students, medical students, and also early career professionals about, you know, how to approach their career in a very challenging time, particularly with what you said about nursing and and burnout and all that. So what is your go-to advice for people starting out? If I, I think I'll speak directly to your nursing workforce and those who are going to work with nurses, which is nursing is a profession that has been part of our social fabric as one of the greatest vehicles for society to focus on people who cross a threshold when nobody else will care for those individuals and care for them at the expense to themselves and to their families on a consistent basis. So what we need is we need a generation to come in and to see this profession differently and demand what they deserve to stay at the profession. Because I think my generation and before us, we accepted things that were unacceptable. And I think that the next generation coming in recognizes very simply the things that they need to stay by the bedside, which is safe work environments, 
ratios that make it safe to practice, and pay that commensurates with the experience that they have. And if you are looking to help lead, I still believe that nursing is the greatest profession you can go into on healthcare to make a difference, not only in individual patients' lives when you're by the bedside, but the ability to drive significant changes at a societal level that actually makes society better. And I'm not sure there's a lot of those professions out there. And so what I would just say is, if you're up for the, the challenge, because life in itself is a challenge, and you want to make a difference, we want you in nursing, because we need the best and the brightest to pay you there. And those, if you're not choosing nursing, we need you to be a champion of the profession, because without nurses, there simply is no healthcare. Well, on that very inspirational and thoughtful note, we're going to have to wrap it up. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. It's been fascinating. Mike, thank you so much for having me. Thank you uh, to our audience as well for checking out today's show. I'm Michael Carice, and as always, remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.